would driving like we stole it today on Cinema Oblivia. Welcome to another episode of Cinema Oblivia, a podcast about movies, forgotten movies, unremembered movies, strange movies, old movies, cult movies, movies you haven't heard of, movies movies you should have heard of, all kinds of movies. I'm your host, James Eldred, and who is my special guest for today's episode? Well, it's uh, Twitter's Subcat here. Yes, Twitter's Subcat, real name to remain anonymous. I know it, but I won't tell anybody unless you, unless you pay me one million. Anyway, no. Subcat here is a car fanatic. Is that a good way to put that? Very good way to put it. Yes, I know almost nothing about you aside from your Twitter account, which is a combination of car things and things I don't understand, and I hit, I hit the like button for anyway because I'm a nice guy. Well, I, thank you for that. Yes, and I wanted you on here specifically to talk about this film and films related to it, 1974's Car Chase, Car Crass, all-time classic, Gone in 60 Seconds. When we first started talking, the first movie you brought up, what was the first movie you brought up to me? You asked me for like the uh, holy grail of car movies, and I, yes. prob- I probably floated uh, Le Mans with Steve McQueen. No, no. What was the first one you brought up? Because I watched it. Oh, right. Uh, so getting into that deep cut territory, we have King of the Mountain. Yes, and I still hate you for that. So It's um, actually a wonder that you invited me on the podcast after watching that movie. Yes, King of the Mountain is an early 1980s movie with, what's his name, uh, Mark Hamlin? Harry, Harry Hamlin. Harry Hamlin, yeah. Who, you know, I enjoyed looking at seven days a week, but it is an absolutely terrible film about car racing in early 80s LA with Hamlin and Dennis Hopper and the dude who played Grizzly Adams. And... That's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life, despite its fantastic use of sticks. So I decided not to talk about that movie. <laughs> if you want to talk about King of the Mountain, just find me on Twitter. Yes. And, uh, yes. At me there. Yes. You can talk about King of the Mountain. Then you can listen. You can see Subcat's um, absolving use of sticks when. King of the Mountain is discussed. But I didn't want to talk about King of the Mountain, so then I thought we should talk about Gone in 60 Seconds because I think it is one of the most fascinating, strangest, and just batshit insane movies ever made. I think so too. And, you know, as a as a fan of car chase movies and movies about cars, there is a whole pantheon of, you know, usually 60s to 70s car chase movies. But Gone in 60 Seconds really is the car chase movie, you know. Uh, H.B. Haliki said it was the car chase movie of the 70s, but in many ways, it really hasn't been topped or nothing quite like it has ever been made again. Um, You know, even though there are certainly car chases in movies that I could name that I would say are better, they had little things like permits and production (laughs) values and closed roads for filming. That's that's stuff for suckers, man. 
Yeah, uh, this was certainly one of the most ambitious independent films ever made. Yes, it is the creation of one man. Usually when I do this podcast, I have a whole long section about the people involved with the film. This is a this is almost literally a one-man show. It is H.B. Hallecky, uh, Henry Blight Hallecky, also known as Toby Hallecky. He is the writer, director, producer, actor, distributor, and stuntman <laughs> for Gone in 60 Seconds. So, Am I missing any other roles? Is that all of them? They were probably he was probably the caterer too. And I don't probably, think he fed his crew. <laughs> yeah, they probably called a food truck down the street. It's B. Halicki, yes. Henry Blight Halicki, born in New York, October 10th in 1940. One of 13 children. Wow. That's too many. I <laughs> I it's hard to conceive of. Um, no, it's easy to conceive. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> too easy. And well, I guess that's from two marriages, also. So that some of them are halves. Uh, Thirteen children. How much do you know about the the life story of uh, good old Toby? Well, um, as his story goes, which has been fictionalized in the Junk Man, which we'll get to later. Yes, we he, will. He got into business in the auto salvage industry, and which he called, I think, H. B. Hallecky uh, Mercantile. Mercantile. Yeah, <laughs> and this man loved cars. And yes, well, he's he grew up. His dad did auto salvage. Okay, so it's a family business for real. Yeah, it's a it really, and he moved to L.A. when he was fifteen, and started to do auto stuff there. Yeah, born maybe he was conceived in a Chevy. Who knows? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's likely. <laughs> yes, and he worked in insurance. I think in L.A a few years or California I mean California and so everything in the movie is something from his life uh, yeah family, pretty much the family business the insurance investigator I don't want to get ahead of things here but in the film his front business is insurance investigation yes the movie is about a car thief who has to steal a bunch of cars in like in a, in a couple of days that's the entire movie and then I think half the movie is a car chase, and that's not an exaggeration. So that that's that's there. Yeah, I just I just told you the entire plot of hey, Gone in sixty seconds. It's yeah, that's spoiler it's, alert. Spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert. Yes, it is. It is a it is light on story. The movie had no script. He would write scenes the, the day of. A lot of a lot of the movie is ADR overdubbed, kind of badly. The movie, the non car chase sequences. To be perfectly honest, have a low budget porn quality to them. Well, apparently, a lot of the people in the film were either amateurs or actual CHP dispatchers, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, no professional actors in this movie. No professional, <laughs> no professional anything. Like it was a one man show. He had the idea for the movie, and I guess he tried to shop it around a little bit, but he didn't have any buyers, so he was just like, "Screw it, I'll make it myself." And that's why he did everything in it. And it, you read up on the production of the film, and it is—it's very fly-by-night, very amateur. Lots of mistakes were made, some dangerously. Like no, per very few permits, right? Yeah, the the uh, mistakes made dangerously is going to become somewhat of a theme yes. across his films. Sometimes they had permits, but sometimes they would just film on Sundays. When, when there weren't a lot of people out, you know? And he would fire anyone who disagreed with him, apparently. 
he was kind of a hothead there. And the film was entirely self-financed in a variety of ways. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was sort of a late-breaking discovery, but yes, given that the plot of the movie is about a guy who steals cars and also has a junkyard and, well... And works in insurance. It works in insurance and how the beginning of the film plays like an almost documentary-like description of how to steal and resell cars. Yes. Uh, it's a surprisingly, I say, cinema verite depiction of cutting off VIN plates and serial numbers mm-hmm. and swapping drivetrains so you can resell a car that you stole as a junked car yeah. that's been rebuilt. Uh, some say that allegedly he made money to finance the film by stealing cars. Um, yes, who is the sum? That is uh, Ronald Moore, who yeah. you might know from such television shows as Star Trek and For All Mankind. Yeah, he, he's a writer, right? Because I don't really know who he is. Yeah, he uh, he was a writer, um, screenwriter, and I believe producer later on. And yeah, you dug up an, yeah, you dug up an interview of him talking about H.B. Halicky and working with him. Now, it's it's at all, but, but we're going to have to say there's a lot of legal stuff involving these movies. I'm, we're going to use the word allegedly a lot, and all a lot of what we're saying is hearsay and speculation. I just want to put that on the record now in case anybody with the last name Halicki finds this podcast. Just want to get it out of the open. But Ron Moore, who was only 10 years old when Gone in 60 Seconds was made, I want to put that out there, he got involved with Halicki later in the 80s correct? Like during the junk man. Uh, even later than that, I think, because there was a pretty big gap. Uh, Ron yeah. Moore came on as, according to this interview mm-hmm. that I watched, Ron Moore came on to do script work for Gone in 60 Seconds too. Yeah. And he was doing script work for, I think, New World or one of those like B-movie studios. And that's how he got involved with Halicki. I that's think. right. And uh, yeah. Denise Denise was a principal there, I believe. Yes. Yeah. That was Denise the connection. Would be HB's, uh, Toby's widow. Yes. And Ron says that he heard that HB just straight up stole cars and sold them to make money to make this movie. Now, yeah. again, there's no proof to that. Ron was not there. I It would not surprise me because this movie is almost an instruction manual for how to steal cars. Totally. Um, yeah. That's one thing that, as far as I remember, I mean, the remake was a real Hollywood production. It never oh. got into the nitty gritty of like what happens, how things are washed after being stolen. Like I, that, that part of the movie felt real to me. Uh, <laughs> having done a drivetrain swap between a wrecked car and a working one for totally legal reasons, which was my friend blew his motor and we okay. bought a wrecked car and took the drivetrain out you. of it. I, be- I believe you. You could also. <laughs> I got a picture of the wrecked car too, but okay. Anyhow. Yeah. Point is, the opening scenes of this film are so documentary-like that yes, it adds an air of plausibility, whether whether there's any truth to it or not. Yeah, because the opening, the very opening scene is a train wreck that really happened. They they found a train wreck that had just happened, and they went there and filmed some scenes around it because it looked good and there was no way they'd get that and they don't have the budget for that. But after that, you go to what's the Chase's auto shop and they really detail the process of you steal a car, 
and then you find you find a similar you find the same car in a junkyard, right? Right. And then what do you do? They take the engine and transmission out, anything with a VIN plate on it. They cut the VIN plate out of the dash or out of the firewall. They take the stickers off. Anything identifying, they swap in the door locks. They swap over to the stolen car and then sell it to a wholesaler as a rebuilt car, as if they rebuilt it from the wrecked one. How much, what, what would be the overhead on that then? I like how, how much money could one, like if you, if you have to buy a junked car, refurbish, do a lot of engine work, I imagine, a lot of like, you know, mechanical work, is, is it worth it in the real world, you think? I don't know. My understanding of how car theft works in the modern world is when a car is stolen, it's either, if it's not going to be recovered, it's either stripped for the good parts and then people find a stripped shell or mm-hmm. it's exported. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert on this. I've had a car stolen. That's as close as I've got. <laughs> yeah, and there's also the cars, cars that are just stolen by drunken jagoffs who just want to steal a car. Like that. That's pretty much what happened. Uh, yeah, my friend who had a car stolen, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, when my car was stolen, I thought it was... Fresh off of discovering this movie, I thought that it was stolen by a savvy operator and being stripped for all its valuable parts. But when I got it back, all that was missing was the steering wheel, the radio, and all the clothes I was going to donate to Goodwill that were in the car. Well, a poor person did get them, so that's good. Yeah, they hey, needed it more than me. Yeah, yeah. When my friend had his car stolen a long time ago, it was it was very similar to Big Lebowski, where I think they found homework in the person in his car. <laughs> like it was it was obviously a bunch of kids and. <laughs> It was just, they stole the car, they trashed a high school parking lot and left the car there, <laughs> pretty much. And I think that's the reality of most car thefts, is especially back when it was easier to steal a car. It's pretty hard to steal a car these days, isn't it? So, it where there's a will, there's a way, but uh, it's a lot easier than it was in the 1970s depicted in this film where everyone goes into the store with their car running. <laughs> well, not just that, but like in the movie, so like the one of the reasons that one of the things that lends credence to the alleged idea that he knew how to steal cars is that like he has a lot of tools that I imagine were primarily made to steal cars. Yeah. Hard, like, hard to say, but uh, they're pulling out ignition locks with a slide hammer and, uh, you know, that's a normal tool with a lot of normal uses, but... Just knowing that that's what you use to pull an ignition <laughs> cylinder out of a car. Uh, there may be something to your theory here. At the very least, he did know how to steal a car. Like, at, at the very absolute least, he had the re- he did he did very good research. Yeah. Yeah. Woo! You know, I never met a woman who gave me any trouble. In the like, so like I said, he's the only credited cast member aside from Eleanor. Eleanor, we'll Ele- Eleanor gets top billing and God, Eleanor gets the seconds. top billing, and we will get to Eleanor in a minute. There are some other humans in this film of note, mostly playing themselves. Now, I don't know who any of these people are. There is this movie was mostly filmed in Long Beach and Carson City, and so the mayor of Carson City at the time, Sak Yamamoto, is in the movie as himself. 
And Parnelli Jones, is that a, a big name? Yeah, he's a, a racer and and ran a motorsport operation. Uh, okay. He plays he plays himself. His yeah. his race Bronco uh, was in the movie. Gets yes. stolen. There is a lot of on location things. A lot of uh, I think taking advantage of connections, taking advantage of locations. Like he apparently had to have known Parnelli Jones to set up that pretty long scene inside the straight up Parnelli's offices. Yeah, uh, yeah, and. It seems like they did about one take to uh, get those scenes with Parnelli Jones. But. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody, it's funny. You know, in this movie, a lot of the supporting actors look confused and or nervous. I was going to say after seeing the behind the scenes footage of Junkman, seeing how Haliki di- directed scenes, I feel that you could definitely be nervous. How did he direct scenes? Uh, a lot of yelling. Oh and, dear. And. Uh, you know, granted, wrangling a film like Junkman, which we'll get to later, uh, probably <laughs> required yelling to get everyone at the right place to do the kind of yeah. sequences they were filming. But yeah, I I got the feeling from having uh, Saki Yamamoto and the Goodyear blimp and yeah, yeah, the Goodyear blimps the, in this movie, the, the train, the train wreck. Every, yeah, he, Haliki had a keen eye to see free production value. Oh, totally! Like he he used all his connections and. That's just smart. There's a great book, uh, the Bruce Campbell's book. You know, Bruce, the actor Bruce uh-huh. Campbell. He, this book is called If Chins Could Kill, I think. And uh, he talks about the making of Evil Dead. And it's like, if you can't get money from people, use what you want to make a movie. Use what they have and use what you know. So you know a guy who owns a hardware store? Ask him to donate some tools. You know, whatever you can do to, you know, use whatever goodwill you have to get what you can get. And apparently... Haliki knew people in the auto industry. He must have known someone at Goodyear. <laughs> yeah. And because the Goodyear blimp is prominent in this film. And he just, that's a way to save money. You know, it cuts down on the cost. Because I think almost the entire budget of this movie had, or he, he says here that there's a lot of conflicting reports on how much this movie cost, how many cars were involved. Because it's not, I would imagine his books were pretty loose. <laughs> but. <laughs> It seems that the movie cost around a million dollars, give or take. Seems and, fair. Yeah. And uh, probably $250,000 was spent on cars. Yeah. You know, he owned a wrecking yard, so supposedly owned at least all of the cars that were wrecked in the movie. That would uh, have to them, except for the ones that went by accident. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There are there are conflicting reports from what I read of which cars he owned. Uh, some people say he owned all the cars in the movie and the Rolls Royces and all the expensive cars. I, well, I know he he owned at least a few Rolls Royces and those were his. But like the there's the scene at a Cadillac dealership when uh, there's a car accident there and the two cars that get that was supposed to get hit were his. The three additional cars that got hit were not his. <laughs> oh man. Oops. Yeah. Very fly by night of operation. And accidents like that on the making of the film were not uncommon. There's another scene where someone's nearly hit by a car. He's supposed to stop and turn, but he stop he doesn't he skids into the car and if the guy hadn't have jumped, he'd be dead. Yeah, that uh, doesn't surprise me at all. There we can get to this later, but in the chase sequence, which again takes up nearly half the running time of the movie. Yes. Uh, they're driving on the freeway, apparently permitted this time. Yes, I did have to be here, yeah. He cuts across four lanes of traffic, accidentally gets tapped in the rear by another car, 
mm-hmm. and hits a light post, a metal mm-hmm. light pole, which mm-hmm. T-bones the car. If it had yeah. hit one foot behind, he would have been dead. Yeah, and that that look that is that is one of those scenes that's like not to get morbid, but like the Dale Earnhardt crash. You know, when you look at that footage, it doesn't look that bad, right? Like from an amateur viewpoint. But what the amount of force with that crash is terrifying. This looked this looked that bad. This looked that bad. It's not it's not it's not a crazy over the top car flying in the air and explosions and fireballs. It's just a very fast collision. And you look at it and you're like, well, that motherfucker is dead. But apparently he broke his leg. And the very first thing he said after they got him out of the car was to, along the lines of, Did you get that? That so. is that is his character. The real that's life commitment. character. You know, that's that's that is the uh the the Haliki way, yes. <laughs> yeah, all kinds if you, there's a great commentary track with the I think the DP and the cameraman. And they tell a lot of stories like that of like the fly by night production, again, filming on weekends, filming, going like there's a scene where he walks into a warehouse, the exterior, not the warehouse. They just went to a building that looked nice. <laughs> they filmed it and then they left. <laughs> Stuff like that. Again, free production <laughs> value. Free production value. It's the kind of thing that I guess you can do it. It's much easier to do if you want to make a movie illegally <laughs> in uh, or without permits in 2021. Digital cameras make it a lot easier. But in 1974, you had to have a film camera. You had to have a boom mic. You had to have people operating all that stuff. The the gumption, the audacity <laughs> to just say, <laughs> "I'm just all yeah." It's just like I'm just going to do this now. Bye. I mean, I I kind of respect it in in the situations where no one's life is in danger. I think that's awesome. You know, yeah, it's just, uh, it's guerrilla filmmaking, but like making a blockbuster. You still hear about that sometimes, even in big budget movies. Like you listen to a commentary track on a Hollywood movie, and they're like, "We don't have a permit here. We just filmed it and left really quick." <laughs> you know, it it still does happen. But I would probably say anything that didn't involve a massive stunt was probably filmed without permits. It's grossly irresponsible. It's dangerous, and yeah, but you know, it's cool. So. I'm- I'm not fully convinced that the uh, POV shots of driving on the shoulder on the freeway mm-hmm. weren't just filmed on a Sunday when they were out there. Um, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would have to imagine a lot of the in the in car stuff is the easiest to film clandestine because you don't need a car. Did you see how they filmed the chase sequences on the road? What 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 they used? Uh, you know, I didn't actually see any behind the scenes stuff for this movie. Although I think I could see a camera mount on the Mustang in a yeah, shot, external could, shot of the Mustang. You can see if you can amounts they have to they put in the script why one of the police cars has a camera in it <laughs> because it's just easier that way. But with it for a lot of the chase shots, they had a station wagon with I don't I'm I'm not a car guy. So the station wagon door that kind of goes open straight down in the back, right? Like the trunk door. Yeah. Uh yeah. They have a hatchback they, that goes up and a yeah, hatchback, tailgate like, that like puts back. Wagon hatchback. They took out the window and made the hatchback and then they opened the trunk door down and they put a camera there. Yeah, this is a technique still used today by the, the yep. lower budget. If you don't have a camera crane car, which are amazing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen one of those. They take yeah, that's like crazy. A, yeah. you know, an X5 and put a crane off the top or a, even a fast car. Yeah. Um, but like in a real movie, <laughs> in a big budget movie, if you're going to have people in a car 
what's the most common technique? If you're going to have people in a car to, like, an interior like a, shot? Yeah, like, a, yeah, an interior shot. They're not driving the car. No, like, rear, I mean, like, back then, rear rear projection was used a lot. It always looks fake, but... Uh, well, but also, you put, them, put it on a flatbed. Yeah, or just drive around uh, with half a car on a flatbed. But I don't think they really did that on this movie. They didn't. They didn't. They, that, that's too much money, man. They're going to get a flatbed? What, are you crazy? No. <laughs> when they made so, the junk man, they hung an airplane off the front of a pickup truck <laughs> and filmed with that. Of course they did. Of course they did. Yes. So, yeah, it's crazy, ridiculous production. And I think it shows in the movie. The movie is very haphazard. It, it is very up and down because... The first half of the film is the setup. He meets, he takes a boat and meets a mysterious group of wannabe car buyers, right? On a plane. Yes, um, with a pretty problematically dubbed over accent. They they give you the setup. Yes. How many cars is it? I believe 48 cars in, in one week. In one week, yeah. Or, 48 or, cars in one week. Or in and, a couple of days. And he has to steal all these cars and get them to them within that time for a ton of money. And he has rule. What are his rules for stealing cars? What's his biggest rule? The car has to be insured because he has to be a sympathetic character. Yes. So that's that is one recurring thing in it. When he finds out a car is not insured, he has to take it back and all this stuff like that. And there are some pretty now again. I like cars. I think old cars are cool, but I'm not the kind of person who can say a lot about a car. So, are there any like aside from the aside from the only car to get top billing, Eleanor, which we'll talk about Eleanor in a minute? Are there any other like super interesting cars in this movie, like something rare or strange or I can't believe they almost wrecked that type thing? A lot of the most valuable cars used in the movie were not actually used in action scenes. Yeah, but. Uh, you know, it's not rare. I like when he stole a, a big rig. Like he knew yeah. what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was that was fantastic. Uh, he steals a manta, which a manta. Uh, what is a manta? You know, I believe the manta was actually a kit car. Yeah. So I hear that phrase a lot. Explain to idiots like me, what is a kit car? Kit car is a car that is sold. Not as a complete vehicle. So usually in the case in the 70s was like a golden age of kit cars because you okay. could take the body off of a Beetle and put almost anything else on. And, <laughs> you know, a Beetle may be a really pedestrian car, you'd think, but it's got the engine in the back, just like a Porsche 911. Uh, you, put, yeah. you, you put a sports car body on it and, you know, you've got an exotic that you built in your garage. Yeah. Okay. So are they more about looks and performance usually? It depends. Um, it depends? There, okay. there, are, there are kit cars like the Lotus 7 is one of the most oh. famous ones that were sold as a complete knockdown kit basically to escape regulations, but also people love to put them together. Colin Chapman uh, apparently was not able to sell it with an instruction manual on how to assemble it. So he sold it with a disassembly manual that you just <laughs> read in reverse. That's awesome. <laughs> there are a ton of Rolls Royces in this movie. I, I, more Rolls is like vintage. There's, there's like a 59 Rolls Royce and a 1970 Rolls Royce, a 1966 Rolls Royce. I'm looking at a list. This is not in my head. Uh, and I love the look of those old cars. But and 
were they valuable back then? Like beyond mark beyond the retail price, were they collectible already? I I don't know. I expect that a Rolls Royce limo was was worth a lot, especially to a you know a politician or a drug lord in another country, which is where they were supposedly fencing the cars too. <laughs> I think the oldest there is a there is a a very old car, the nineteen twenty seven one, the Citroen. I was actually impressed at how many Citroens were in this movie because uh, one of the things, if you go far enough down the rabbit hole of of weird cars and cars that we can't, we don't get anymore, um, uh-huh. the whole world of French cars is fascinating. Citroen is fascinating. They have oh, really okay. interesting engineering and unique styling. And now that I'm a died in the wool Citroen fan, although I'm probably mispronouncing it because I'm not French, and went back. You'll there are so many in this movie. They're just usually seen stationary. Um, which is probably accurate if you have a Citroen SM now, but okay. I junk band though is where the Citroens get all their action scenes. Yeah, uh, so I don't know if those were the same cars later or what. It could but. be. Yeah, who knows? I mean, if he owned it, I would. I think. I think some of the same Rolls Royces are in both movies because I know he owned a few Rolls Royces and kind of more. It's very rec- a Rolls a silver Rolls Royce is very you know recognizable. You, you're not going to forget that car, so it kind of stands out. And but you know we're talking about the cars more than the movie, really, because it really I mean I tell I just I told you the entire plot of the movie. He plans the car. He plans all these car thefts. The first forty five minutes of the movie is a is basically a series of car thefts. Uh, you know, showing how he steals cars. Sometimes it's as simple as just walking in the car and taking it. <laughs> yeah, he gets, a, a, he gets a Pantera that way. Yeah, a, a, a what? A uh, Pantera. That was a tube frame sports car, uh, Italian styling, and uh, the engine was is a Ford V8. So that's actually a pretty hot car still, um, De Tommaso Pantera. Okay, because when I hear Pantera, I think, you know, Cowboys from Hell, but that's that's one where a lady gets out of it and leaves it running, and one of the one of the crew just hops in and drives off. Which, according to this movie, is a very common way to get your car stolen in the seventies. Um, I think it. I. Th- I mean, that has to still happen. People just don't. You know, people just. You know, I'll be out in a second, and they. <laughs> someone comes and gets their car. You know, you gotta be. You gotta. You gotta think, man. Of the of the old cars, I like the Rolls Royces. Was a nice. Uh, there's a Lamborghini in there. I have I, that that appeals to eight year old me, <laughs> and there's a nice Jag. It's and it's just there's that one scene where he's just walking through his warehouse of cars. That's a great That's, great scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you would say that. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> but the thing I like about that too is that and. Uh, this is one of the things that was actually a scene that was cut out from Deadline Auto Theft. But there's a scene where he he rolls up on a bicycle to steal a Bentley or a Rolls Royce or something, one of the the old limos. <laughs> and in the scene where he's walking through the warehouse, the bike is parked next to the car. Yeah, yeah, you're right. As yeah, a they mentioned that. They mentioned that on the commentary track, actually, too. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, except for the implication that he stole the bike too, which I don't like because yeah, bike thieves are the worst, man. Like <laughs> I can watch a movie; <laughs> it's about stealing no, cars and love it. But yeah, hey, well, you know, let's be real. Most people have, if especially anybody, anybody who has a Rolls Royce stolen, they can afford to have it stolen, right? Right? I mean, 
getting your Rolls Royce stolen would suck. And if and if you have a luxury car, if I, to all my luxury car listeners out there, <laughs> so there's many of you, I don't, I won't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, eat the rich, fuck your cars. It would suck if you had a vintage car and it was stolen. But I bet you can afford to have it stolen. And at least it's at least you've got car insurance. Yeah, I assume you have car. If you if you have a roll, if you have a 1970 Rolls Royce Silver Shadow and you don't have car insurance, then you deserve to get it stolen. <laughs> But you know, getting your bike stolen blows. Like I yeah. can't, as 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 I discussed in the rad episode, I am physically unable to ride a bike because one of my legs is practically only for show. But I I understand the importance of bicycles and having one stolen would suck. I've but yes, had, I've had a bike stolen more times than I've had a car stolen, and it has pissed oh, me off way. Were. But it's pissed me off way more than when my car got stolen. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a series of car thefts, and then one of the cars. What's the car? What is the car that has the heroin in it? That is, I think it was a Cadillac. Okay, that's a caddy. Some, probably some kind of caddy. There's a car with a shitload of heroin in it, because that totally happens. People just leave bags of heroin in the spare tire. I'm trying to remember. That is a trope that I've seen in another movie. Although I might be thinking of the <clears throat> remake that we won't talk about. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, the yeah. accidentally stole a drug car. True. I accidentally stole a drug car, and they're like, no, fuck this. We are burning this car. That is too much heat. And then his brother-in-law, I think. Yeah, he wanted to He wanted to sell a million dollars of heroin. I mean, hey, man, it's the 70s. What you do is you keep a million dollars of heroin, and then you're set for, this, for disco for the next five years, you know? Okay, so it was a Cadillac Eldorado that was packed to the gills uh, with drugs. Of course it was. And so then the brother-in-law's pissed. He calls the cops he, to rat out Halicki, Chase, right when right when Chase is stealing the very last car. And pace, what is pace. the very last? I'm sorry? Uh, pace. Pace, yes. P. Not Chase, Pace. I'm, I am so sorry. Chase, but Pace, his, Pace, Chase. But his company's called Chase, Chase Research or Chase Laboratory, so. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. Pace is stealing all the cars. He has one more car to steal. That's when his brother rats him out, and the cops find him right when he's stealing what? He's stealing Eleanor. Yes. 1974 Ford Mustang? It is a 1971 Ford Mustang redressed as a 1973. Okay. So that is the Eleanor in this movie. Yeah, I'm going to lose all my car guy cred for this. Oh, I tell you, no. Eleanor. I mean, it is, it is, it is, it is a car that has its own Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> it is a car that, if you name a project car after, and it's a Mustang, you will be getting a knock on the door from a lawyer. Yes, we'll talk about that type of Eleanor later. Yes, but like it's right up there with the Batmobile and Kit and the Mystery Machine as cars that have their own Wikipedia page. It is a yellow Mustang. There are several of them in the film, and. 
it has become kind of iconic because once he steals the car, that is the rest of the movie, the rest of the movie is a 40-minute car chase with occasional cuts back. One of the interesting things about the car chase is that it shows the fallout. That I noticed like, that please, as well. Movies yeah. don't really do that these days. No, or ever before, really. Like it shows, like he's the good. The car thief is the good guy. I mean, he's the protagonist. But you still see this car chase he's causing has sent several people to the hospital. Innocent yeah, they, people. The camera lingers on the aftermath accidents. You see people bloodied. You see people getting yeah. pulled from burning cars. And you know, I, I don't know. If he wants to show it's a cautionary tale, but I did find that to be a little different and refreshing. I think, yeah, it's it's interesting. Also, also, let's be real; it's a way to to lengthen the movie. True, and he resorts yeah. to a couple of other uh, ways of lengthening out the chase by constantly cutting to the radio crew that's reporting on the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, anything to help the edit, the you know, you have to. If you don't have those, then you have to show where the car is going, and it has to be a logical progression in geography. By having those edits, you're not, if, if he's moved ahead 15 miles, you don't notice. So it, it, it's a good, it's, it's a common thing movies do. It's, you use the edits to move the story in a, in a more logical manner instead of just focusing on the one thing forever. Because even though it's an awesome car chase, let's be real, it is, it's 40 goddamn minutes long. Eventually... <laughs> It does get a little tiresome. Yeah, there are, there are some spots that get a little bit repetitive. Uh, again, mm-hmm. I don't think he wanted to throw out a single foot of film that he shot. And Probably so not. I can't blame him. Yeah, certain sequences go on for a little longer than they should. Um, yeah, but for the most part, it's it it works fairly well, and it really has a better sense of geography than the majority of car chases in movies. Uh, yeah. To compare to, especially if you're from the Los Angeles area and you you know he's starting in Long Beach, he goes through Torrance, Carson, and just like it's the South Bay. And yeah, I, I didn't run through Google Maps and show all the <laughs> locations that they talk about, but they say where he is. And I'm pretty sure it follows a logical path. Yeah, totally. And it's a well-shot car chase in that it doesn't – the you know, I – I like Fast and Furious. Do you like Fast and Furious? Everything except for the second one. Oh, well, yeah, that's the common, yeah, that's that, the right answer. And I think Fast and Furious card chases are, are well made because they, they, they do a combination of CG and real stuff and they still give you the wide shots so you know what's happening. A bad card chase, a bad action scene is too many edits, too many close-ups. This doesn't do that. I don't think they could do that if they wanted to. That'd be too hard. So... By working with the limitations of not many cameras, not knowing what they're doing, they have to stick with medium and long shots and kind of long takes. And it it makes it shows how real it is. And that's cool. You know, you don't you don't get that in modern in bad modern action movies. That's totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Can you think of a movie that has a terribly made car chase? Terrible. I don't know. Probably the remake of this movie, which yeah, yeah, yeah. not it not only botched the uh, having a car chase that takes up half the movie part, but it had a number of super fake shots. And oh yeah, it. I haven't watched it in years, but the remake seemed like it was an all right car movie, but a terrible car chase movie. 
Yeah, the remake Bailey. Let's yeah, get it out of the way. This was remade in two thousand with Nicolas Cage and Angelina Jolie. Then I think Delroy Lindo is in that. I like Delroy yeah, Lindo. Yeah, he was yeah. he was a high point in that movie. Yes, and it's a piece of shit. I hate that movie. <laughs> I that is up there for me with probably Blues Brothers two thousand <laughs> as one of the worst movies I've ever seen in a movie theater, and. It is definitely one of the worst Hollywood productions I've ever seen. That movie peaks with its opening credits. <laughs> you know, and the opening credits, to be fair, were pretty good. The opening credits are a fantastic little CG, like almost a salt, like like a modern day Saul Bass thing with this dope Moby B side, I think, called Flower. And it's great. And then it just sits its pants and it's a complete disaster with one of the worst. <laughs> CG car jumps I've ever seen in a movie. Because there's, there's no excuse for it either, because the jump is a famous part of this movie. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, there aren't many you can't really spoil this movie. It's a car chase. The the end of the car chase is uh just a fucking ridiculous jump. Like I don't know how long that jump is. It says it was over 30 feet high. And 120 feet long. Like it might be a little embellished, but but it's definitely high. It's a high. I don't know how long it is, but that is a high jump. Yeah, and it looks too high. There were no. There's no engineers working on this film. There are no stunt coordinators. No. No one's doing. No one's taking out the graph paper in a triangle. <laughs> there was a car jump in the Man with the Golden Gun with Roger Moore, James Bond. Oh Bobby. yeah. And they simulated it on a computer, yeah, uh, in the 1978 or whenever that movie came out. Mm-hmm. That that was simulated to make sure that they could shoot off this ramp, the car would do a barrel roll, and it would land on the yeah. other side perfectly. Haliki did not have a supercomputer to calculate the trajectory of this jump. They just fucking Haliki sent it. did not have an abacus. <laughs> and set up a ramp. And I mean, I've seen you've seen cars jump in movies before, and in, it turns out in real life, cars don't really like to be jumped. When when the Mustang hits the ground, you see the roof ripple in slow mo. Yeah, well, well, the- cars don't mind being jumped; they really mind landing. <laughs> they very well. <laughs> and- so does the human body. Apparently, there are different variations of this story, but he he did hurt himself. He he because he drove the car for that scene. There didn't need to be a person in that car. Like, <laughs> well, if you want to see it, I guess that's yeah, a good but, point. It's a pretty wide yeah, shot. Yeah. It's a pretty wide shot. And But he compacted his vertebrae. He walked different after that. <laughs> like, it permanently affected his body. At the, you know, that's fucked up. But it is, hey, it's his movie. No one made him do that. It's all up to him. So at least he didn't do it to somebody else. Like, you know, there's stunt, you hear about tragic stunt accidents for bad movies and the stunt person will raise a concern. It'll be ignored. And then something bad happens. This is no one's raising a concern because it's all him. So good for him. Uh, <laughs> I also like in that scene and in several other, other scenes, the amount of bystanders. Yeah. Uh, they could not control their set. Clearly. No. no. And, <laughs> So it looks like a Group B rally stage with the amount of people lining the side of the road, which surely made it 
legit dangerous. Like you, you almost made me spit out my tea. That's yeah. <laughs> it is, uh, I mean, yeah. I feel that not only did he know that he can control the set, but again, I think it was free production value. Look, extras. They're free. Oh well, yeah, I think in the real in the real world, I guess it would be like the OJ chase, right? Like a chase goes on long enough, people are gonna see where it's going and watch it. Yeah, I mean I I used to live in LA and watching car chases there is like the national pastime. Well totally. Uh, usually on TV, but we see it in the social media era though, when people take video and they know the chase is coming. Yeah, they get ready to get set up the tripod. I'll get the 4K camera out. We'll get the high-speed film. We'll get it. No. And there's yeah. even a scene in this movie where he's at an impasse. The cops have him hemmed in. There's uh, civilians cowering because the cops have their guns out. And a, a dude makes eye contact with Pace and then kind of backs out of the way so that he can get away and keep the chase yeah. going. And, well, uh, if I was if I was that dude, I don't even know that dude's intentions. If I'm lying down on the street between the cops and a car, yeah, okay. and the cops are pointing guns at the car. Yo, I am moving. Yeah, good point. <laughs> you may have just not wanted to get run over. <laughs> yes, or get shot, or or the or they shoot pace and the car rolls into him. Who the hell knows? Like, I don't want to be there. I can't blame that dude. Get the get the fuck out of Dodge. I'm just a poor boy, as poor as can be. But I know Jesus is gonna save me. I traveled life's highways, never fell to the side. And Jesus is gonna take me for a cherry ride. Don't cry, my darling, or feel the knock at the door. Just hold me tightly, kiss me once more. I think he knew he had something different when he made it. So. He finishes production on it, and instead of looking for a distributor or looking for a minor studio, I'm sure he could have sold this to somebody. I'm sure American International Pictures, that's the studio that Corman worked with, they would have bought it, or the rank organization, or any number of B-grade exploitation studios would have bought it. But he was like, no, I made it myself. I sought it myself. I drove the fucking cars. I wrote what script there was. I'm going to distribute it. <laughs> so Halicki distributed it on his own. He believed Starting, in what he was what, doing. Yes, he had total total belief in what he was doing. And he premiered it in 1974 on July 13th at 8 p.m. <laughs> at the Long in Long Beach at the State Theater. And it was a charity event. I think for muscular dystrophy. And that was the premiere. It got a slightly wider release the following week, but really only in California and a few other cities. It didn't really start to move throughout America until 1975, going through reviews and archives. It's opening in places like Kansas and in Missouri in February. It goes to Ohio in March. It doesn't open in, until wash until November in Washington, so I would imagine Halicki didn't have many prints made, and he just took whatever he had with him. He would go with it. He would tour the movie. He would bring Eleanor. It was a true road show. It was a true road show. He would four wall a movie theater. That's when you rent out the entire theater. You get all the money from the tickets. And the movie theater gets all the money from concessions. 
Uh, that was a, not that's never been super common, but that was at its most common in the 1970s because it was it was a good way to make your movie be in a movie theater. Yeah, and if you believe in yourself, as again Haliki totally did, or if you or if you make a cheap enough movie that you'll turn a profit, you know, <laughs> a lot of the movies that four wall movie theaters were bad. They were bad. This is probably one of the better ones, and. It's very hard to say how much this movie actually made. He had a lot of big claims. He said in some cities it outgrossed Towering Inferno. That was the biggest movie of that year. He said, for example, in four weeks in Houston, in in nine weeks in four theaters in Houston, it made $100,000. Wow. Yeah. And the the often touted final gross of the film was $40 And even if that's inflated, that's all going to him. <laughs> so the the rags to riches story, as it were, that's depicted in Junk Man is not too far off. Yes, yes, the sequel, as we'll get to very shortly. And he says it was the 21st highest grossing film of the year. That's really hard to pin down because that that takes in what do you count as a film of the of the year? Because it probably grossed more than Godfather that year, but Godfather came out in December. So you can't really count that. It made most of its money in 1975. So it's the highest grossing movie of 70. Is he counting the 75 gross in 74? It's impossible to really say. And it doesn't matter. It made a shitload of money. And then that doesn't even include home video distribution, overseas distribution, cable TV stuff. Any money this movie made went to him. And uh, purportedly it made a shitload overseas. It is a super easy movie to localize. Almost all the dialogue is already dubbed because <laughs> almost all of it was dubbed in later. There's only a, there's ha- the second half of the movie has almost no dialogue in it. And nothing that can't be changed, at least. Nothing that can't be changed. You don't need to subtitle it. You just dub it and you're good to go. So it must have done gangbusters. It did great in Japan. I know that. I own a Japanese Blu-ray of this that has two different vintage dub tracks on it. No way. Yeah. And I have the Japanese poster in my room. The The Japanese title is Vanishing in 60 Seconds. Banisu. Banisingu in 60. And it did huge business here. Most people of my age, I'm 41 and older, know of this movie. It was a huge, 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 huge hit that every critic hated. <laughs> Not that doesn't does that, does that surprise anybody? I mean, <laughs> no, but that's that's the way of the the movies that do well overseas. Yeah, well, that's just that's action movies, especially back then, were not critical darlings. This is the seven. This is the mid seventies. This is the height of the auteur movement. This is the height of new Hollywood, right? So this is the height of car chase movies having a meaning, like <laughs> Vanishing Point. Yeah, there's a there's not really any existential soul searching yes, in this film this is not the driver or drive uh this is this isn't even smoking and the bandit like this is pretty bare bones and like some of my funny the funny reviews there's one from the st louis post dispatch in february of 95 this is the review see the car see the thief car all gone see the policeman watch the chase boom bang crass zowie sock pow whoops well, it was an easy review to write. <laughs> yes. Another one. Here's a very telling review. 
from Jim Arpey in the Quad City Times in Davenport, Iowa. As a primer on car stealing, Garner 60 Seconds is most instructive. <laughs> As anything else, it's zilch. I respectfully disagree with that. So I like this movie kind of. I don't. It's a, when I watch this movie, it's a little boring. But if I'm watching it with friends or with whiskey or with friends and whiskey, the second half of the movie moves at a good enough pace. And it's just, and showing it to someone who's never seen it is more fun than watching it because it's just so ridiculous. How do you feel about the movie as a whole? Like, do you think it's a good movie or just a fun movie or what? I think it's a fun movie. And <laughs> okay. I think it's very impressive considering the circumstances in which it was made. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, it's pretty hard to sustain something like a car chase for as long as this movie does. And pretty much nobody else has ever really tried before or after. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Well, Our, I would say long car. I mean, Mad Max. Yeah. Fury, uh, Fury Road is a chase movie. Uh, probably and, and Road Warrior. Movie. Road Warrior too. For sure. A substantial chase movie. But those do, those break up the chases more. Yeah. So like when yeah. you compare it to other movies, uh, you know, Vanishing Point probably has more chase in it than, say, Bullet. But you know, Bullet is a seven-minute chase in the middle of a of a sort of tensely plotted thriller that's based on a yeah. book. It's not yes, really exactly. a car chase movie. No, it the the car chase is all it serves to do for the plot is gets rid of these assassins that are yeah that Bullet is battling with. Uh, this movie couldn't exist without the car chase and not just because of runtime. Like that's, <laughs> that's what you came for. That's what you came for. I remember uh, the IMDB went a long time ago, used to have a weekly column of like, help me find this movie where people would write in a description to a movie and oh, they this. would tell them what they would tell them what it was. And they had to retire it because almost everyone was asking about this movie. Well, like, that's that's the thing is for a long time this movie, despite making millions of dollars, it felt like it was pretty obscure throughout yeah, the, it, throughout the nineties certainly. Yeah, throughout the nineties it was pretty obscure because it was hard to find, and well, that's a story that we'll get to very quickly. But this movie did make a ton of money, and I think after he made it, Hal- Halicki probably spent four years promoting this movie because this was playing in theaters until nineteen seventy eight. So. He's promoting it for four years. Then he has a lot of money to play with. He makes his ridiculous office, yes. which <laughs> is in his next film. Hilicki started collecting stuff like crazy. He probably was already collecting stuff. He had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of toys, just thousands of them, and, and hundreds of cars and all this crazy shit. And I have to imagine that and his junkyard business, which was probably doing pretty good money, is what kept him occupied for the second half of the eighties, the second half of the seventies. I mean, have is there any discussion in car geek circles about Halicki's life after, but like between the movies, what he was doing? You know, not not that I've heard. No, you know his story, yeah. which we're gonna we're gonna get to. We haven't gotten to the the end of the story yet, but yeah, it it really his story effectively starts with the release of this movie mm-hmm. and. All of his subsequent movies were 
either a variation of a theme or a continuation of Gone in 60 Seconds. Yes. So he followed up this movie several years later in 1982 with The Junk Man. Where, what's the, okay, so who does Haliki play in The Junk Man? Well, <laughs> H.B. Haliki plays H.B. Hollis. <laughs> yes. Who is a junkyard owner who made it big and also has made successful movies. <laughs> yes. And to, and has become fabulously rich from these successful yes. movies. It is a self-insert fan fiction into his own life where he he's he's a widower in this. And that this in at his real life he had not been married yet. In this movie, he's a widower with a teenage daughter. He's an Oscar winner. <laughs> which <laughs> the one thing that this this movie did not really talk about what other movies H.B. Hollis had made because in real life yes. H.B. Haliki had made one movie Gone in 60 Seconds and yeah. <laughs> I guess we're going to get yeah. right down to it the movie Gone in 60 Seconds figures prominently into the plot of Junk Man the Junk Man opens with uh, Hollis stealing a car uh, uh, Bricklin SV1 which is an interesting car why is it, okay, okay, stop, stop. Why is the Brooklyn an interesting car? Brooklyn, the Brooklyn's an interesting car because it was the brainchild of Malcolm Brooklyn, who is a serial entrepreneur, um, who also was the first guy to start up Subaru North America, I believe. So he imported oh, okay. Okay. imported Subarus when they were, uh, frankly, a little bit unsuitable for the U.S. roads. It was like the Subaru 360, the little tiny car. Um, okay. The Bricklin SV1 was kind of like a proto DeLorean in that it was yeah. an exotic looking sports car with gull wing doors, a lot yeah. of interesting construction <laughs> techniques, and also in some pretty major ways, kind of horrible, but yeah. looks great on screen. And never, he wrecks the shit out of that thing. <laughs> never mind the fact that the gull wing doors take like 10 seconds to open in real life. You, know, you can still open it in the middle of a chase. Uh, hey, man, it's a movie. And. Chasing him in the scene is Hoyt Axton. Who he must have met at some point. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. So if Hoyt Axton is the dad in Gremlins. Hoyt Axton was also, may he rest in peace, a fairly su- successful um, songwriter at the time. He had written Greenback Dollar, which is a great song that you probably have heard of, and many other big songs. And he's in this movie, kind of. So the... <laughs> So what? So there's the car chase, and then cut because it's actually revealed to be him filming a new opening for his movie. Yes, and so Hoyt Axton is really displaying himself in this because he has a few more scenes as himself in this movie, and so that yeah, they they film this car chase scene for this movie for the for another movie, which we'll get to that in a second, and then. He's going. So the plot of the junk man is somebody wants to kill him. Yes, <laughs> and I won't spoil who. You can really figure out who really early. I won't spoil who. It makes no sense. It makes zero sense. The person who wants to kill him is killing his meal ticket, it- and <laughs> the the majority junk man. Okay, I'll be real. I like Junkman more than Gone in 60 Seconds. I think it's a better movie. <laughs> it is. What it lacks in the gorilla kind of veracity of the original Gone in 60 Seconds, it 
makes up for by amplifying everything. And it's it, it it looks like a movie. Like it the people are talking and on the then uh, you can see their faces at the same time because it's not dubbed in later. And there's actual scenes with people having conversations. There's it's edited much better. There's a, there's a few silly edits, yes. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely they had a script when they made the drama. He had a script. He's not a bad actor. I mean, he's playing himself, but you know, that's that is harder than you would think. He 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 can act decent enough for the role he needs to be in. And um, it has Linda, Linda Day George in it. She was in Missing Impossible, the TV show. And she, I think she's the reporter in this. And it has good pacing. And it gets the it gets the big chase. Like, the big chase starts pretty early. And it lasts a long fucking time. Not as long as the first movie, but... Yeah, they they get two good chases in in the, in the front half of the movie. They get the one, mm-hmm. the one with the Bricklin. And yeah. then there's the centerpiece, which goes on about 25 minutes. Yes, as all these a woman, a woman in a car and amazing sunglasses, and tries to shoot him while two biplanes throw grenades at him, because it is it is uh, said that this person, the person who wants him dead, wants him to be killed outside of this James Dean festival. It has to be public. It has to be public, yes. And it has to be public because then they can film at the James Dean Festival and get more cars in the movie, I would imagine. That's that's why it was public. Free production <laughs> yes. value. I'd say yes. that once again, uh, just like Gone in 60 Seconds, the this chase that's in the middle of the movie, um, not the last chase in the movie, once again, yeah. this Junkman really delivers on the chases with at least yeah. three completely different uh, setups. But the sense of geography... It's actually pretty good too. It takes place in this town where the James Dean Festival is going on, mm-hmm. and you know it's in the, it's in the central central California. I thought it was I thought it was a good setup. It's a cool scene, and you don't see many plane car chase scenes. No, and like the the planes get a lot of a lot of time in this. It's the pl- yeah the 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 person who did the plane work gets their own credit in the opening credits, and how so. How did how did uh, H. B. Halicki almost die here? Well, uh, much like the pole in the first one, this one, uh, one of the biplanes was coming down and is supposed to buzz his Cadillac, and apparently put part of the wingtip right through the windshield, and part of it actually hit Halicki in the head, um, and he didn't die. He was flown to Los Angeles and had surgery got stitched up and went right back to the set according to his self-produced making of documentary at least but you could see the windshield of the car and he shows all the pieces of wing that went into the cabin of the car it's like this guy and almost into his head this guy yeah. almost died yeah Again. yeah and and the stunt that goes right like so when that that plane crashes into the car like that's that i i assume is, is it on a crane or something is that how they did that Oh, the oh, the one that actually just like crashes into in the, the film. I mean, I know they do a cut when it explodes. I know that, but it does crash into the back of the car. Is it on a crane? Like, how do they do? Is that in the making of? Uh, well, for some of the plane scenes, they actually took an entire plane, hung it off of a crane on the front of a truck, and drove with that. Okay, uh, I still don't know how they did the crash of the plane right in front of the car. Like the, the, that that is amazing. I mean that. I, I, w- I went back, I rewound it, and I, I looked at it. I said, they just crashed a plane. 
it's an it's a fantastic stunt. Like some of the and when that car gets hit and breaks in two, yeah. like the same the same stunts and gone. But it's a cool stunt. Every time I see it, it's cool. I imagine they have to really work a car for it to break like that. They, right? did, they did a lot of cutting on a couple of cars so that when they got hit, yes. they break in half. And you're right, Con yes. and Sixty did it too. But then the guy is driving around in half a car. Um, actually, well, there's, there's some, there's, there, it happens twice in this movie, and at one point, the old lady drives around in half yeah, a car. Yeah, she drives around in half a citation, which she buys at the same Cadillac dealer that was terrorized and gone in 60 seconds. And what is the car? What's the yellow car at the end of Junkman? You know, he's driving a Corvette that was, yeah. uh, you know, it gets it gets messed up worse than Eleanor. Yeah, I love when he drives on top of cars. Yeah, that happens. That, parking that, lot. that happens twice in this movie. <laughs> yeah, hey man, you know, it's like a lot of a lot of the good shit in his movies is like the good shit in a Jackie Chan movie. It's like, yeah, he does the same shit over and over again, but it's dope. So who the fuck cares? Like, like you're not here for the story. And while the story in junk man is complete garbage, I do. The dialogue's not bad. It's a well-written, it's a bad story with a good, with a decent script. And, so, and actually quite excellent stunts. So we've hopefully convinced stunts, you. Decent acting. It's a good film. It didn't do very well in the box office. I can't find any f- official figures on it. It underperformed. I think Haliki. So Haliki. Haliki was apparently a very litigious person. Lawsuits will be, will be a factor coming at this point forward. And he claims that several of the big movie theater chains mispromoted the film as an R-rated film, and it was a PG film. And He's he's right. That would that would hurt your business. For sure. Especially back then. For sure. For it, sure. So he sued movie theaters for hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't think anything came of that. I think that was probably publicity. And but the movie didn't do well. And I was like the times had changed, I think. It's a big jump from nineteen seventy four to nineteen eighty two. For sure. Star Wars came out. Yeah, although Gone in 60 Seconds was still in theaters and Star Wars came out. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Also, Spoken the Bandit came out. You know, car chase films with stories and funny scenes had had begun to happen. And I I don't know if Halicki's vision is matching what the 80s had in mind. No, he, he, he made an attempt, but still very stuck in the 70s, I guess you could say. Yes. But there was a long break between Gone and Seconds and the Junk Man, but his next quote-unquote movie only came out a year later. Now, <laughs> how did he make another movie so fast? You tell me, because you've seen more of this film than I have. What is Deadline Auto Theft? Deadline Auto Theft is the 1983 follow-up to both Gone in 60 Seconds and The Junk Man. And mm-hmm. while it presents itself as an all-new movie... If you start watching it, you might realize that something is amiss about 10 to 15 minutes in when it's revealed that it's actually a re-edited version of the original Gone in 60 Seconds. Now, keep in mind this was released in 1983, and most of the footage is still from 1973, or whenever they were filming, and it's got a new subplot and new characters, uh, with Hoyt Axton's character, plays the uh, police captain basically he's playing the delroy lindo's character in the remake and that's why i started to think that the remake of gone in 60 seconds was 
almost owed something to Deadline Auto Theft in that it tried to make the cops actually be characters. Uh, that's Always a mistake. Yeah, well, that's something the original kind of did. They had this police detective who uh, yeah. paces friends with you know, little does he know. But Yeah, yeah. So they took – this is almost like when – they released Godzilla in the West and added a bunch of scenes with Raymond Burr that they could just insert into a action yeah. scene and make it more relatable to a different audience. So they, they added in all these scenes with Axton's character. Um, he delivers the voiceover in how auto theft uh. is done. That was done by one of the crew in the first movie. It, it makes yeah. more, it makes more sense that way. Um, okay. To make some room. Cause the runtime's about the same. Uh, the whole opening chase is the chase that was being depicted in the junk man as a movie that Hollis was filming. <laughs> so, so you break, you, you did a good job on Twitter of breaking down the nesting doll of, so the meta textual universe. This is something I, I knew about gone in 60 seconds. I bought the DVD back in the year 2000 when it came out. Cause I had heard yeah. and heard this movie talked about in hushed tones and it had trailers <laughs> for junk man, deadline auto theft on it. And yeah. I thought the junk man looked pretty crazy, but I just did yeah. not, I was not prepared for how metatextually weird this is. As far as I could tell, Deadline Auto Theft and Gone in 60 Seconds are both movies that take place within the junk man cinematic universe. Yes, yes. Is the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. So in the junk man, Gone in 60 Seconds is a real film that actually was made. Yes. And, and- the Hollis character purportedly perfected his driving skills doing the stunt driving when he starred in Gone in 60 Seconds. Yes. And then in Junkman, they are filming Deadline Auto Theft. Yep. So you're comparing it to Godzilla, the American... You're, you're comparing it to 1950, 1954, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And that's a good comparison, but I think the big difference is there is almost no one in America had seen Godzilla. Right, but everyone who this was is, this is yo, this is some fucked up bullshit. Like this is if I had if I had paid I have to imagine if this got a theatrical release, it was minuscule. Yeah. But if I'm a if I'm a going to a drive in movie theater in, you know, Omaha in nineteen eighty three and I pull up to watch a new car movie, a new car chase movie, and I see this shit, I'ma be pissed off. I'ma want my money back. That is that is some that is some rank shit. That is uh that would piss me off. <laughs> Point is they they made no attempt to prepare you for the fact that this is really a re edited version of the same movie. It is and and like you, it's, I would imagine that the fashion jumps are pretty crazy, and because the the fashion in Gone in sixty seconds is very seventies. Yeah. So like, as far as I could tell, uh, Deadline Auto Theft, a nineteen eighty three movie, is a period piece because all the okay. newly the newly shot footage, it doesn't look out of place compared to the you know like they they made it look like a nineteen seventies movie. Okay, how about the film quality? Is does, does the quality in film change? You know, that's actually a good question because the restoration of Gone in sixty seconds is actually tremendous. Yes, it is. Remastering yeah. they did for the Blu-ray. It's on Amazon. Okay, and yeah, it looks yeah. it looks fantastic. Um, there are other changes to the remaster, which we'll get into. Yeah, it it basically plays out the they 
the Bricklin, which is the hero car on the box cover, that's a 1974 model. It's referred to such as dialogue. There's they oh, don't okay. they don't create an anachronism by having a new car appearing in this movie. Okay. And the uh, the guy who's presented as a douchebag owner of it is talking about how there's only 15 in the country and it's so valuable. I don't think a I don't think the SV1 was that valuable by 1983 in, <laughs> in the real world. It looks cool. It's it's kind of an admirable attempt to fix some of the perceived shortcomings of of the original Gone in sixty seconds that I don't think really needed to be fixed. I I, I still in this it's just so brazen yeah, and it is ballsy. I'll give it it's that. a ballsy move, and you know it's, it's I I would be I would be so angry. And that's an obscure film. I. I have been in hundreds of video stores in my life. I have never seen that movie. I had never seen a box for the junk man either. They both had home video releases at, at one point. Uh, but I had I had never seen them. I the, the VHS for Gone in 60 is ingrained in my brain because that was in every video store because that was released by a pretty big company. Th- these other ones, no. And then so he follows up Deadline Auto Theft in 1989, he begins filming Gone in 60 Seconds 2. Uh, which now we have to get sad because yeah, if you're listening to all these crazy stories, it's like, he almost died here. He almost died here. He almost died here. I haven't heard of this guy in a long time. What happened to him? You can probably figure it out. So it's the the water tower scene. They're filming Gone in 60 Seconds 2 with his new wife, Denise Halicki. And there's a water tower that's rigged to collapse. And a lot has changed since 1974. In 1974, I'm I'm serious. Like You could get away with making a big stunt movie without really knowing what you were doing. Because while Hollywood knew what they were doing, a lot of other people didn't. By, By 1989, you can't... There's no excuse. You have to plan better. And that Ron Moore interview you found, he says that Haliki just didn't care, right? He was still making movies the same way that he had always made movies. Yeah. And so they're planning this big stunt with a water towel that's supposed to fall. I don't want to get into specifics because I'll get something wrong. It goes wrong. It collapses too early. And the water tower didn't technically didn't kill him. The water tower hit a telephone pole cable. The telephone pole fell down. It hit Halicki directly on the head, and he died. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. At the age of like thirty nine, I think. So, yeah. Wait, you know, it's sad. It's it's a sad story. Forty nine. Um, yeah, I think forty. 40 yeah, age of forty nine. Sad story. It's 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 too bad. But he kind of did it to himself. That like, is what Ron Moore says in this interview. I found to be kind of fucked up, but he well, said, "Yeah, Ron Moore calls it karma." I wouldn't call because Ron Moore says that he was very Halicki was very abrasive and mean, and I wouldn't call it karma. I would say he did it to himself. Okay, yes, like yes, uh, having a having a stunt set up that was not properly engineered and it went wrong. Yeah, and and he was warned. Yes, yes. So that movie was never finished, unfortunately. No, you can find it online. The they edited together thirty. Did you that the thirty minutes of footage they edited together? It's it's impressive. Um, it's a lot of it's in a truck, 
and it has the feel of the opening of Beverly Hills Cop. Which you it, know, yeah, like it was already a, several years old at that point. Yes, but but I'm not I'm not saying this in a bad way. It's like they took that idea and was like, what if a double a, a double tractor trailer truck really fucked shit up? So it, it's annihilating cars, just almost to the point where you're like, is he getting off on this? Like, <laughs> it's it's impressive. It's it's very fake looking though. Like the 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 explosions and the sparks, they don't look that's not how cars move. Every cop gets out of their car the exact same way and cocks a shotgun. <laughs> like in the exact same pose. And it's it's like a video. It's like it's like when it's like when you see three characters in a video game with the same exact animation appear at the same time. Appear at the same time. You're like that's not normal. And it's not that not all this is the movie's fault. The movie was not done, you know. Right. So, so uh, from what I heard, his his uh, method, so as it were, was to film the action scenes first and film all of the uh, dialogue and connective tissue later. Um, yeah, I mean, film what you know, I guess, and also I guess that if you know you might get injured, then you do the action scenes first so you can accommodate your injury into the rest of the movie. <laughs> maybe, maybe. That seems like a halicky maneuver. That seems like a halakey maneuver, yes. Also, if you know, hey, someone might die, let's not waste money in case we can't finish the movie. I don't know. It's online. You can find it. It's it's kind of fun to watch. They do splice in a lot of footage from Gone. Like, a lot of cop footage is from Gone and from Junkman, and they repeat it a lot. It's <laughs> like just, to, this- just to make something that, that works as a short film. Yeah, yeah. I'm not criticizing it. That it's They had to do something. I get it. So... So yeah, that's on DVDs and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that footage. I think that footage was not available until after the year two thousand, when the DVDs came out. Yeah, when the DVDs came out. So. Yeah, James Dean knew he was flying too low. He was bound for glory and he had to go. He loved bright lights and good fast cars, women in love and the Hollywood stars. The women moaned and the young girls cried on the night that James Dean died. Ooh. Yeah, the junk man lives with his life on the line. They're trying to kill him and he's running out of time. He loves his cars and he loves his child. He's a millionaire and born too wild. Women moaned and the young girls cried on the night that James Dean died. These films were very hard to find for a long time. You said you didn't see it until until the DVD came out, right? Right. I had started to be interested apparently maybe it was when the remake was announced to be in development and i started to read about the original and was like this movie sounds crazy but i've never seen it before not even in a rental uh video (laughs) rental store in the 90s yeah so i had seen it because again the video store i hadn't really watched it like on my own until college probably like 98 or so so it was released on video in 1983 and in 84, they're first by one company called Full Throttle Films, which I think is a Taliki. <laughs> and <laughs> then, probably. And then released by Media Home Entertainment. They were a huge early VHS distributor. You'd recognize their logo if you saw it. According to the Wikipedia page, it has been re- released after that. I couldn't find any evidence of that. As far as I'm concerned, it was released on VHS tape in 1984. And then that was it. Because. 
And then same with Junkman. Junkman got released in 84 in one of those huge, big box VHS tapes. Yeah. I love. Yes. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a porno or a Disney film. That's it. That's all the, how, that's the only things that have those. And Deadline Auto Theft didn't get released on VHS until 1990. Wow. Um, yeah, even they knew after, after he died. So these movies just vanished when Halicki passed away because legal hell <laughs> um there's a lot of conflicting information on this there's a lot of rumor and there's a lot of just probably people getting facts wrong but he died in 89 he left behind an estate worth millions of dollars i found one article in 92 that said he was worth four million dollars another article in 2000 said 10 million i don't know if that's inflation or if one of them's discounting in the rights to the films but when he died he had two wills, which is always a fun thing. <laughs> and the first will, which was from 1998, said had a lot in the will. 1988. Family, 1988. 1988. Yes, 1988. That will let he left most of it to his family members and business partners, very equally distributed. You know, typical will. Second will, less than a year later, his brand new wife gets almost everything. And that, that was about like three months before he was killed. Three months before he was killed. Den- her name is Denise uh, Halicki. Now they they were newly they were still practically newlyweds when he died. It's very sad. They were dating for a long time, so it wasn't like it's you, you, could, you could if you're the conspiratorially minded could be like he was married and then he was killed. But <laughs> they would they were together a long time. And in in the will, she got all his cars, all his toys, and the rights to his films, most likely. The will had a stipulation, <laughs> which is so stupid. It says, split fast and dirty and have a good time, no probate. Like that can be enforced. That it was not it was not enforced. There was a ma- there were massive lawsuits between both people, between Halicki and between the Halicki family and Denise. And those went on for the better part of the 90s into 2000 when Denise got the rights to the films. Yeah, and I, I see the DVD I believe came out in at least in the US in November 28th, 2000. Again, this is yep. just what Amazon said. Um, no, I, they're right. They're right. They're right. They're right. Looks like I bought it, my copy in the year 2001. But yes, so. there was a there was you kept the Amazon kept that information for you. It's scary. You can see the first yeah, thing you bought yeah. on Amazon. The very first thing I bought on Amazon was a DVD, an import DVD of Ringo Lamb City on Fire. <laughs> I think I, I, still, I may have bought uh, Gunsmith Cats, the uh, anime that's pretty much also a car chase film on VHS. Great. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So uh, it was re-released on VHS tape also, and and DVD in 2000 around the time of the remake. The remake was released in June of 2000. I know that the VHS re-release came out before that, but not by much. The same year, the same year. So around 2000, and when those came out, they were different. The um, you get get into so how were they changed? Well, I you know it took me a while to realize this. Although literally every YouTube comment and Amazon review will point this out, but the mm-hmm. DVD release and the Blu-ray release that took place afterwards, which also is the master used on the streaming versions, 
has a completely mm-hmm. replaced soundtrack. All of the original score is removed. Not that there's a whole lot of it. Uh, there's quite a bit of it. Quite a bit <laughs> of original songs, but not a, yeah. not a lot compared to the remaster, which adds a lot of scoring everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can tell they kind of wanted to get some scenes to feel like they were moving a little bit more from the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's controversial, but it seems like everybody is is just pretty much pissed at the re-recording of and the the engine sounds are different, right? Yeah, they had to re-record all. No, they didn't have to; they did. They re-recorded all the sound effects and audio, got new music scored, and I even noticed some changes in the voiceover. So they, yeah, yeah, even in the commentary track, they notice it and they don't understand why. I thought that was pretty telling. So. You have to wonder, if she got the rights to the movie, then why isn't the audio in there? So, you do digging. <laughs> there are two... The movie... So, the original version doesn't really have a score. It has songs. It has, I think, six original songs. There are two songwriters. One is a man named Philip Kataturian, who did a few other minor releases, nothing of note. The other is Ron Halicki. Ron being HB's brother. So... When you watch, there's a making of, there's a, there's a documentary on the, the Japanese Blu-ray. Maybe it was, it was a Speed Channel documentary awesome. <laughs> called uh, Straw Man Showman and about Haliki. And they talk about the restoration in a very, very suspicious, allegedly, no, not, no it is suspicious, <laughs> suspicious way. They, they say that the movie was trashed and that they, quote, had to throw out the mono track. Which, that's a lie. Now, I'm not going to say allegedly. That's a lie. There's no reason they couldn't have sourced the mono track from a second generation print or even included it as a bonus feature from a VHS rip if they really wanted to. There is a release of Jackie Chan's Police Story 2 that Criterion just put out. One of the original audio tracks was lost. They sourced it from a Japanese Laserdisc. Okay? You can do it. Like, if you want to put in the effort, you can do it. There's a way. They took out that audio and replaced it with a new mix, not because it was beat up, but because they didn't want to pay Ron Halicki the money, I imagine, to license his songs. Because owning a movie and owning the songs in the movie are not the same thing. So... That's my theory. Or maybe Haran, maybe Ron wanted to be difficult and he was asking a bagillion dollars. You know? It's it's impossible to say who's to blame. But that that is the reason. <laughs> Fair enough. The good news is Criterion Collection's not here to help, but people on YouTube are in terms of making oh, yeah. the original audio back up with the restored video. Yes. They do a pretty good job. Although even like the credits, they can't. They did. They they changed the credits in both the movies. And here's one that makes me think it's more Denise. I know I don't want to. I mean, I'm sorry to jump on the. It's the evil ex-wife or evil widower, evil widow. You know, stereotype. But there's a scene. Ron Halicki's in the Junk Man. He plays a guy with a pig. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, pig farmer with a pig farmer with a waterbed in his in it for a pig in his car. It's a great scene. There's a post-credit scene with him that's cut out of the movie. No reason to cut it out. No, there can't be a reason. I think they just maybe if it is his fault, 
that the songs aren't in the movie, then that's Denise saying, well, you're not in this movie anymore. Fuck you. <laughs> you know? And so that that is also lends credence to my theory and that it is, it is entirely, entirely a music rights issue. And that's a bummer because that new, that new music is garbage. When I watched this movie the first time to prepare for the podcast, or when I watched it again to prepare, I actually <laughs> listened to this uh, rescored version. And I'll be a little more charitable than garbage, but it changes the feel. Uh, I won't. So who 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 did the new music? Uh, according to the extra credits scene that's added on the remasters, it was Bill Maxwell and Lou Pardini. So yeah, I can't. I don't know who uh, Bill Maxwell is, but Lou Pardini is currently in Chicago. The band, not the city. <laughs> He's been in Chicago. <laughs> He's been in Chicago. He was in a he was a touring member in the late '90s, and he's been an Axel member as a keyboardist and vocalist off and on since 2009. So, in Chicago chronology, that means he's been in Chicago since the album Chicago 35 <laughs> to Chicago 38, because all their albums are numbered. Okay. Um, it's not quite as uh, illustrious as I thought when I said, hey, this guy was in Chicago. He must no, be he famous. No, he did not co-write 25 or 64. <laughs> no, that's not him. And let's be real. Like, Chicago has, like, what, one good album? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this this new score that they added, it to me, my main problem with it is it sounded like, the music sounded like music being written in the 90s to sound like it's from a 70s movie. And, and I even think you're still giving it too much credit. To me, it sounds like music that wasn't written. Like, it just, it's, it is wallpaper. Yeah. It's nothing. And it does nothing to give the movie any feeling. It has nothing to give it any oomph. It has zero personality. Say what you will about those old songs. They're not great. They're silly. But the opening song is about Eleanor. Yeah, Junkman also. You know, I I cannot br- I can't bring myself to watch Junkman without the original oh. audio because there's there's the song that's the Junkman that is amazing. It's about the Junkman, just like the yeah. original songs about Eleanor. And and the the re- replaced music in the Junkman is even worse. Oh, I, I like, listened to the end credits and it was some. Oh, oh it was no good. It was no good, and I it that that is some like. George Lucas special edition bullshit. Now, again, we don't know who's to blame, Denise or Ron, or maybe some mysterious third party. Whoever is to blame, I don't like them. (laughs) Because I don't, from a historian standpoint, that's wrong. And the longer the original audio tracks that they have on a film somewhere aren't being used, the less likely they are to ever be restored. And it's just a it's just shame. Now, thankfully, <laughs> the internet is a wonderful place, like you said. So, if you want to watch the original Gone in 60 Seconds with the restored audio, don't buy it. Don't give them your money. Go to the internet archive. A hero <laughs> did the work. It's not a perfect job, but it's close enough. And you can hear the original music taken from a good VHS copy put in the movie. All, all same with Junk Junkman's on YouTube. Yeah, Junkman and Deadline Auto Theft. They haven't gotten a copyright strike there, which shows that the lawyers are paying attention mostly to the centerpiece of this trilogy. Unfortunately, quadrilogy. I feel like the aspect ratio for Junkman's wrong 
and everyone's a little fat, but it doesn't. They're mostly in cars. You can't tell. Um, so it just makes cars look wider. It's cool. Makes the cars look wider. I one one thing that also lends credence for the songs having the individual copyright is if you go to Discogs, which is a movie database, uh, a, a music database website. Ron Halicki and the other guy, they have pages there. So Ron Halicki was in a band called Viva with that guy. They released an album called Automobile Downstairs that is apparently quite rare and not very good. Um, the, 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 uh, the trademark of any self-released album in the 70s. But the song Superman oh, yeah. from Gone in 60 Seconds is a B-side to a Netherlands promo single <laughs> so if you want to get superman it's on that if you can find it it'll cost you probably um it has gone it is sold from between anywhere between nine dollars and ninety dollars on discogs now if you want the the songs if you want gone in 60 seconds and lowest lane blues which is i love that song <laughs> yeah that's so, a used it's in a pivotal scene in the movie too yeah they released a promo 45 for that, I imagine, for radio stations. Can you guess the name of the record label? Full Throttle Records? Nope, nope, nope. High Octane Records? Nope. Eleanor Releasing International? Theft Records. I love it. Yeah. And it says on there, executive producer, H.B. Halicki. Publisher, yeah, here you go. Halicki Parable. Halicki so, Parable. I don't know who Parabelle is. Parabelle says it's a hyphen. So different ownership, most likely. Written by, yeah, and written by Phil Kakaturian BMI. So these are reds- another one written by Kakaturian and Ronald Halicki BMI. So they own those songs, the copyright to those songs or publishing rights or something to those songs. And that is why those songs are not in the movie. So that 45 has never been sold on Discogs. <laughs> So well, if anyone can find it, it's you. I think I'm. You know, g- give me enough whiskey and enough lockdown and enough time on the internet, I will find anything. <laughs> so, I mean, and you can find those songs on YouTube. They ripped them, you know. So there's that too. But yeah, f- watch the movies as they were intended. Do not watch them that way. Although I will also say, I think what, if somebody had the time and the money and the effort, they could go hardcore on it. Get the Japanese Blu-ray. Because like I said, so in Japan, there's a great thing about Japan, nostalgia. There's nostalgia for old dub tracks. Because like those voice actors are usually famous. Like I talked about in the episode for the Gogol 13 movie, one actor might be the dub voice for Sean Connery for 20 years. You know, so people associate actors with a type of movie or an actor. Uh, so there's nostalgia for those. If you get this Blu-ray, it has the old TV dub, which has the old music. And from what I can tell, it sounds pretty damn good. So someone out there, buy the Japanese Blu-ray, rip that, then put in all the audio from the VHS when anyone's ever talking for those two and a half minutes. <laughs> and then put in the other audio from the Blu-ray, and it'll be the definitive fan edit, you know, the despecialized, gone in 60 seconds, decelerated, decelerated edition. I don't know. What do you want to, what's a good. This is a great idea that somebody out there needs to do. 
I don't know how to do that. I, I, my audio editing skills are limited to podcasts and restoring vinyl records. I can't do uh, any video audio sync. That sounds like a nightmare. That would trigger my OCD like a no- like nothing. But anyway, um, I think we should probably wrap up there. This is going to be the longest episode of the podcast ever. Well, <laughs> but we had to cover a lot. A lot to cover. A lot to cover. Is there anything else about the H.B. Holicki metatextual universe? Well, I mean, like we, to have to, we have to give it a name. And I think if we say Eleanorverse, we're going to get sued. So <laughs> I'm going with the uh, the Junkman cinematic universe or the H.B. Holicki quadrilogy. The H.B. The H.B.C.U. Yes, H.B.C.U. But why would we get sued if we said the Eleanor universe? What's wrong with that? Well, so... I only found this out recently, but Denise Aliki got a producing credit on the Gone in 60 Seconds remake from the year 2000. And Well, because he owns the rights of the original. Yeah. Yes. The star of that movie, it's not necessarily Nick Cage or Delroy Lindo, but yes, it's Eleanor again. Oh, and no, it's Giovanni Mabisi. Just kidding. No. <laughs> I feel like that movie had a lot of problems and uh, just casting the most punchable guy in the history of modern cinema is not helping it. Master P's in that movie. You know, it's amazing. The first Fast and the Furious movie came out only a year after the Gone in 60 Seconds remake. And Oh, that's it's so different. Before you go into the Eleanor thing, one really fucked up thing about that remake is that's directed by Dominic Senna. Dominic Senna. He directed California, which is a great movie, California with David Duchovny and Brad Pitt. And he directed Sword Fist and then more recently White Out, which is terrible. And... The other terrible Nicholas, one of many other terrible Nicholas Cage movies, uh, Season of the Witch. But one of his very first jobs was he was a cameraman on Junkman. What? I know. <laughs> that that is some <laughs> kind of like the opposite of James Cameron going from Corman movies to being James Cameron. Uh, <laughs> Well, he went from he went from being the cameraman on Junkman to directing videos for Climax and um, Peter Cetera, Chicago Connection, Janet Jackson, Richard Marks, Sting. You know, like this Jody was Watley. that was a time where a lot of music video directors. I mean, this has always been the case for yeah. a long time, but a lot of music video directors are being handed these high profile movies, and you know, get this guy; he's good with frantic editing, and it'll yeah, be yeah, very yeah. exciting. And a lot of times, it turns out to be complete shit. I feel yeah. like, you know, just to digress a little bit here, that thing about the thing about Haliki is this guy loved cars and there's an energy mm-hmm. you can't fake. You just No, you, no. You cannot hire any old director to make Gone in Sixty Seconds. Totally not. You've you've gotta just have that passion for it and it comes out in the film. Yeah, and but Dominic Senna, like, there's a reason why he hasn't made a movie in 10 years. Yeah. Right? I mean, when your best film is short fist, yeah. that's telling. But what about, so what about Eleanor in that movie? Okay, so Eleanor, which had a, a customized body kit and uh, silver paint and wheels, it was kind of emblematic of a pretty, personally, I feel like it's emblematic of a pretty bad style of modification of classic cars. It's kind of a pro-touring look, but... Uh, a regular 1967 Mustang or a GT500 looks better than this thing they made for the film, but but it was very yeah. specific. Like the body kit didn't exist before the movie, so it's got to mm-hmm. look. 
and the car is named Eleanor. It turns out that after this movie came out, Denise Halicki would go after you if you built a car, if you sold a body kit that was the Eleanor kit, or is uh, very protective of the IP of this car, including mm-hmm. suing a YouTube channel that was building a replica car. They had no problems until they called it Project Eleanor, apparently. Yeah. So yeah, don't don't no oh one more thing about uh Denise's uh legal um litigious nature. So after HB Holicki passed away, eventually, you know, she's a, she started dating again. She started dating uh Robert Kardashian, who at the time was famous for being, you know, OJ's lawyer. And you can see him driving. There was this footage of her and him in a silver Rolls Royce. Which was so in the movie. That one in the movie. Also, Robert Kardashian is Denise Halicki's third cousin. <laughs> so, all right. You t- do with that information as you will. I'm not, that's, you know, that's just, dis- that, I don't, that's, that's, that's kind of the blurring line between distant and not distant relative. <laughs> I think third cousin. I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop you know, that for now. Um, I will I'm gonna drop that. For, I will point put a pin out, in that. Put a pin in that. Uh-huh. I will point out that if you are interested in what went on with uh, lawsuits, legal troubles for calling a project car Eleanor, there's an excellent article on Haggerty called "Don't Call It Eleanor: Legal Trouble for YouTube's B is for Build," and that that covers the case. Um, Probably cool. better than than hearsay. It's actually a neat project. They were taking the body of an old 1967 Mustang, or and putting it on a then current Mustang, huh. so like a chop and. Okay, pretty interesting. Yeah, that sounds cool. I'll check that out. But anyway, we'll finish up then. Uh, Subcat, thanks again for joining me. Uh, I'm glad that you were here to help me uh, navigate the the automotive. Uh, aspects of this film because i am ignorant so why don't you tell people where they can find you online all right well thanks for having me on and you can find me on twitter most of the day at supcat (laughs) s-u-p-c-a-t and if you're listened this far i'm gonna let you in i also run it's van time on twitter oh wow time have you ever seen the movie the van you know embarrassingly enough i have not even dipped my toes into the uh the van exploitation genre of the well, 1970s. we're going to have a conversation after this podcast. So, anyway, you can find me on the internet as usual at Lost Turntable at twitter.com and on my website, lostturntable.com. Subcat, thanks again for joining me. It was a lot of fun, and I'll see all you again next week for another episode of Cinema Oblivia. The power machine or on the freeway Father will make us my MC homeboy Knowing the rules ain't part of his program Finding the right way around this map Might be pretty hard cause he fucked on crack G, Grand Theft Auto You gotta make a mark and move where you want to T, that determination To steal what you can and run from the nation Hey, hey, what do you say? We automate a secret to speed from our getaway Take it to the edge, there's nowhere to hide And call up the boy, let's go for the joyride Thank you